0: When it sounds too scary, make that jump. Because nine times out of ten, everything is always going to work out well at the end. You don't know how it's going to work out in the process. but Everything will always work out in the end. As long as you continue to uh, not survive, but thrive. And as long as you thrive in the uncertain moments, and thrive even in the good moments, and thrive in the bad moments, meaning your mindset because you can fall on your face i'm talking about the mindset that you know that you're going to thrive it will always
1: work out in the end for you welcome to for the culture podcast where we and our guests discuss our lived experiences in science this podcast explores how our work and mere presence impact our culture today this podcast is an unfiltered conversation and really more of a therapy
2: session where we can vent and um, hopefully the audience can benefit from our experiences. This podcast
3: provides a platform for emerging and current scientists to discuss their development as individuals and community leaders in order to help and improve our culture.
1: All right, we are back. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you all for uh, tuning in as always we appreciate our listeners who listen in weekend in, week out um, it's been a couple weeks since our last recording but we are we're back we're back we got a special guest in the building today so we're really excited to bring him on and have a conversation with him so without further ado I'm going to just go ahead and read his uh, his bio uh, impressive bio and then I'll bring him on to the show so uh, today's guest is Mr. Jason Davidson he's currently a PhD candidate in the pharmaceutical sciences and pharmacogenomics at UCSF. He's a member of Dr. Atul Butt's lab, where he intends to develop methods to effectively stratify uh, differences in disease and drug response outcomes between populations with different uh, social determinants to improve overall healthcare quality and equity. Jason's primary studies, uh, primarily studies treatment utilization and health outcomes of type two diabetes patients that are treated within the UC health system. Uh, Jason's main aspirations of scientific impact doesn't just involve research, but it involves the effective communication of science to communities of color in which his research affects the most. He believes that the, that science communication is the bridge that will connect scientists to everyday people to translate important findings in a digestible and useful way. And also uh, he is Uh, a graduate of Hampton University with a BS in biochemistry. Uh, He's also initiated into the Beta uh, Chi chapter of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated while playing division one football and leading the team as captain. So he's doing a lot of things on the field and off the field, but without further ado, welcome to the show, Jason Davidson. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the the show. Your, your bio is extensive, you only just covered a small bit of it, but is there anything that you want to add uh, just as an intro uh, to our audience and tell them a little bit about yourself?
0: Um, yes, well, thank you for speaking on my bio and talking about my bio. I would also like to mention that I'm extremely excited about science communication specifically because the field that I'm in with clinical informatics directly impacts people um, with clinical research findings. And I find it extremely important to use the findings from our research to be able to effectively communicate it to everyday people so they can understand what exactly is happening in their communities with respect to research, but exactly also what is happening
1: in each disease area of clinical diseases. Awesome, awesome. So science communication is a, is a huge thing. Uh, I think it kind of got national attention back in 2020 um, with a lot of misinformation that was going out there. So uh, about the vaccine that is. So could you give a little bit more background about how you kind of got into, what attracted you to the field or the discipline of science communication and maybe just talk about your STEM journey and, uh, overall to this point.
0: Okay, well, I'll, I'll talk about the STEM journey first, because that will provide context for why I got into science communication. So my introduction to STEM was very non-traditional for most people. I did not know much about STEM growing up. Matter of fact, I didn't know much about science um, growing up. I grew up in Southeast Virginia, Newport News, Virginia, known as the 757. And growing up, A lot of things that were pushed were music, sports, the arts and business. Um, There wasn't much room for science, Uh, incorporating that into where I grew up and the people that I associated with. So science was always uh, on the back burner rather than it being at the forefront of my childhood because of my experiences. So growing up, I had, there's this people, they call me the human calculator, uh, cause I can do any multiplication problem two by two or three by three with like in a matter of like a few seconds. Um, and because of that, that kind of got me into STEM because I was like, I have this knack for numbers. I have this knack for curiosity, this knack to be inquisitive, um, and didn't quite know how to translate that to sports, art, and business in the same fashion. So when I started my journey in STEM, I started my freshman year of college and I became a chemical engineer major, but I was extremely naive, right? So I initially wanted to become a chemical engineer major because I wanted to make drugs, I wanted to make drugs, but I didn't know how drugs were made. So I went in with the idea that I was going to make already made drugs, like Viagra or metformin, or you know, cancer-related drugs or anything like that. And I realized that that's not exactly how the pharmaceutical industry works. They work on developing new drugs and if it or optimizing drugs. So I transitioned from that and went into biochemistry, all while I'm still playing football, went into biochemistry. And that's when that's when life got hard for me, um, <laughs> I would say. So I I started taking extreme, extre- extremely difficult chemistry courses, such as analytical chemistry, physical chemistry, quantitative analyses, transport phenomenon. And these classes, they were kicking my butt, um, actually. And I almost gave up on science. But then I went into my junior year of, of school at Hampton. And during that football season, I had two concussions um, That during that season. And because of those concussions, I was like, OK, I no longer have two routes. I can no longer take the football route. I can only go the science route now or take any other avenue. But I knew that science and football were two things that I was interested in at the time. So I decided to take the science route and I started doing my, my research in my senior year of college, which is also pretty different for most people. You know, most people already know when they come in and STEM, they're taking they're doing research freshman year, first semester. They're doing summer internships over the summer. I did none of that. Um, and Because of that, I had a lot of imposter syndrome um, because there were people who had a couple summers or even a couple years under their belt of research who were applying to uh, graduate programs. And I had one semester applying to graduate programs. So because of that, I actually decided to do a post-bac research year, gap year, at Baylor College of Medicine. So my, my, first, my first research experience was structural biology, and then my, my gap year, I started doing gene therapy, which are two very different things, both wet lab, but two very different things. And so then I applied to UCSF. There was one guy who was extremely instrumental in my graduate application process, Dr. Peter Hotez, um, who is major in microbiology, tropical medicine. He actually was on TV a couple of times, very famous doctor uh, during when the pandemic first started, Um, and he was extremely influential in helping me get into grad school. So when I got to UCSF, I initially went into the chemical biology and chemistry program and I came into the program thinking I was going to do synthetic chemistry drug discovery, but because of COVID hit, it forced me to learn how to code. Coding was extremely foreign to me and I didn't I didn't know how to code. And quite frankly, I was a little nervous, and a little scared um, to learn how to code. But because I was forced out to code, I began to learn, l- look more into other ways of research that can be used by um, computational programming. And that's where I fell into where I am now. in doctor to abuse lab simply because I came across a Ted talk where he talked about medicine and talked about uh, big data and how it can be used to understand health outcomes and understand treatment patterns and treatment utilization. And I was inspired and I sent him a cold turkey email and that's how I ended up where I'm at now. (laughs) And so, so I completely transitioned from wet lab to computational lab. And I do think that if I was extremely influenced as a younger child to uh, go into science earlier, maybe I would have been more privy to different areas of science instead of just throwing myself in there naively. Um, And I may have been where I am now, maybe a little bit faster, but Godspeed. You know, we're always on. We all have our own time.
3: Oh, that's so true. So what are you doing in your research now because you go a little bit into that and what are your future goals for your research even um after you finish your doctoral uh, studies?
0: Yeah, so my research now is have you are you familiar with electronic health records? Yes, okay. so we use electronic health records, which are essentially records that are between a patient and a provider at any given encounter, meaning like a physician visit, visit a surgical visit, um, whether you get treatments from the doctor, anything that you talk about between yourself and your doctor is essentially recorded in electronic health records. In our research, we utilize the data from these records to answer questions about hospital readmissions, surgical outcomes, health outcomes meaning like treatment outcomes randomized com- controlled trials what, for all different um diseases and i specifically work with type 2 diabetes so i use social terms of health which are essentially the conditions in which people work play live age worship that affects their quality of life and health outcomes and in this field i i look at social terms of health from a population level meaning that we use census tract information so whenever you fill out the census every 10 years, you fill out these surveys that includes how much money you make, how many people live in your household, your education level, meaning if you have lesser than a high school diploma, greater than, college degree, so forth. Information about your location, meaning your location, the grocery stores, your location, the hospitals. They'll also provide information on whether you have a telephone or not. And these surveys gather so much information that is publicly available data and because it's publicly available data it can be used by anyone to develop any sort of research questions but of course the people are de-identified so you don't know who the people are so in my research i take the data from the census at the population level meaning like patients in each zip code for example and we take that data on their socioeconomic status and some of the things that i mentioned earlier and we use those and we categorize them to understand how does socioeconomic status, meaning if you have a higher income or a lower income, can affect your treatment outcomes, for instance, for type 2 diabetes, to see if maybe patients who have a lower socioeconomic status have worse outcomes than those who have a higher socioeconomic status? Or does mental health play a role into their health outcomes? Does education play a role into their health outcomes and all of that?
3: Wow. Sounds like some really cutting-edge research.
0: Um, what would you like
3: to do with the skills and the techniques that you're learning now um, in your doctoral
0: research? What would you like to do with that later on? Well, it's funny that you asked that because mm-hmm. One day i i one day I feel like I'm gonna go into industry. The next day I'm ready to do to start my startup. The next day I want to be in academia. So the answer to that question is always evolving, primarily because the skills that I'm learning in this lab and learning throughout my PhD process can be applicable to all three, especially in this field. We're in such a premature uh, age, I would say. Um, Not premature, but very infant stage. That's the word, infant stage in this field where the opportunity is wide open. Opportunity meaning to develop artificial intelligence, tools to help physicians make better decisions, um, opportunity to develop tools that can help us help inform physicians about treatment patterns in populations, in different population groups, opportunity to consult, opportunity to develop digital health platforms to help aid with medical tech, with med, with med tech devices. So the field is really open when it comes to medical informatics, that it's really hard to make a decision on exactly where I want to go at this time. But I will say that industry and startup has a higher priority than academia does. Um, And a lot of that has to do with the fact that academia is a slow brew. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And there's absolutely nothing wrong with a slow brew, but the outcome or the probability of a likely outcome in academia is not as high. Is when it comes to industry and industry makes more money so why not
2: <laughs> you
0: know like why not <laughs>
2: that's a great answer <laughs> yeah so i mean that's that's a great yeah great answer um i'm definitely gonna steal that comment of always evolving for sure okay <laughs> uh, i feel like you know especially when you get like closer to graduation like i'm kind of like my last few years and so people will start revving up the questions of so what's next so what's next so what's next you yeah. know so I think yeah I'm just gonna go with, yeah always evolving you know stay tuned on the next episode of Dragon Ball well Z you know <laughs> 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 so uh, so that's a great answer for one two uh, I also did a post back at, at Baylor College of Medicine uh, which also kind of helped me get started on the uh, bioinformatics side of things on the coding side of things. So shout out to BCM. Shout so, out. Right, right. <laughs> Actually, our, our last guest uh, was on, is is from BCM as well. He has his uh, PhD there. Um, you might know him. Um, any case. So, what kind of led you to uh, UCSF? Was it just a connection you had with your PI, um, or was that just a school that you got in, in 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 a two where you applied, or you know what what kind of led you from uh, BA, you know, all the way over to Um, the bay. It was from 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 VA to the bay. That's kind of carry. Anyway, carry on. (laughs) It was it was God.
0: It was God, honestly, and I say that because when I applied for PhD programs, I shot for the moon. You know, there's this quote from J. Cole that I always keep in my head: "If you ain't if you ain't aim too high, then you aim too low." Uh, That's from one of his songs. And I always keep that in the back of my mind. That's essentially how I approach the science. And that's how I approach the PhD application process. So I only applied to top 10 schools in the world. I say that to say I only applied to top 10 schools in the world. I applied to Rockefeller. I applied to Wild Cornell. I applied to Stanford. I applied to UCSF. I applied to I did apply to Baylor College of Medicine because I was there. Um, I applied to Hopkins. I applied to UPenn. I aimed, I shot for the moon, for the moon. Shooting for the moon or high risk led me to only get three interviews. And out of those three interviews, I only got one acceptance. And that acceptance happened to be UCSF. And so that's why I say it was Guy. And I really only applied to UCSF because someone told me about it. I did not know what UCSF was until someone told me about it. And then I realized it was top 10. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going. Well, I'm going to apply. Um, and that's how I ended up here. It was really divine um, because God made the decision for me. And I'm glad that he did make this decision because I would nev- I would most likely not be in medical informatics now. I may still be in basic wet lab uh, doing drug discovery, protein modeling, synthetic chemistry and I may not be as happy as I am today, so.
1: Yo, that is an amazing journey, man. I'm really happy that you found your way into this space because um, there's not a lot of us in this space and I can not be in all spaces at all times. I, I find the work that you do really interesting. I didn't learn really about uh, that aspect of like looking at claims data and real world evidence, That whole that whole term right there, real world evidence, real world data. I didn't really hear about until a couple of years ago. Well, into my PhD, well into the PhD program. You spoke in, at least in your bio about um, the, the, I guess the kind of marriage between real world evidence, using that information to advance health equity. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you think your skills and the things that you're training can help advance health equity for the people that look like you and others?
0: Yeah, I can speak on that. Um, a lot of it has to come from relativity. The, fact that I can relate because the communities that are being affected mostly when it comes to social terms of health, I'm a part of that community. For that being one, my family is a part of that community. My family suffered from type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, all of that, just to name a few. Some cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, just to name a few. And what i realized when I stepped into this field, and this is how I know it was divine, was because when I stepped into this field and began reading research papers in this field, I realized that physicians or academic researchers would answer questions, for example, talking about cancer hospital readmissions. They would talk about the data, talk about data-driven decisions, Um, But they would never talk about how exactly it impacts people of different races or people of different socioeconomic statuses and how that can play a role to actually increase health equity. It was always about this is the data that we found. This is the results. And it makes it makes sense because that's kind of how scientists are meant to explain. It's very didactic, you know, you have. Intro, you have your background, you have your methods, you have your results. You may have a discussion. But what I've come to realize is that in this field, in order to relate to non-scientists and for me to relate to my community and provide these scientific foundings in a way which they can understand, you have to tell it like a movie. So you have your, in a way where it's like you have your intro, you have your background, you have, why is this problem important? Then you can talk about the methods. Most people are going to skip the methods, but that's needed to publish a paper, whatever. So you talk about your methods a little bit, <laughs> but then after that, you know, you, you get into your results and you talk about how this impacts the people that is actually going to impact. And then you talk, then after you talk about the impact, you need, it's important to talk about how you can approach to, actually improve health equity or improve the conditions in which your findings find gaps in healthcare, right? Because if you're if you if you're in this field and you're talking about how certain communities are affected more with chronic illnesses and diseases or by health disparities, it's one thing to talk to to use the data and talk about there's gaps here, but it's another thing to provide impact and how you plan on making an actual change. Because if you're not going to do that, no one's going to care about the finance. Everyone knows there's already health disparities. Everyone knows there's gaps. But the matter is, how are you going to fix it? And how can you explain it in a matter for that people in the people who are being affected can understand what you're actually doing? Um, I'm not sure if that really answered your
1: question, but that was on my heart. <laughs> Yo, then, then that, and then some. Yeah, appreciate that. I really appreciate that. Yeah. With that being in mind, what do you think from your research,
3: a researcher's perspective, but also as a person from these communities? that are affected, what do you think are some ways that we can introduce evidence-based research and, you know, using data? And there's this mistrust in our community as well with how that data is going to be used. Um, From your perspective, what do you think uh, could be changed and how would you use your science and your techniques that you're doing now to uh, push that change?
0: Well, for one, it starts with me. Um... That's kind. That's why I've gotten into this field because I didn't see many, uh, many black folks in this field. I'm going to be honest. I went to a conference this past week. Um, there was ten black folks after out of there was like ten to fifteen black folks out of three thousand people. Um, at this conference I went to, um, is American Medical Informatics Association, um, AMIA, which is like the biggest clinical informatics conference in the country and one of the bigger ones internationally. Um, So it starts with me, um, but also bringing awareness around disparities and bringing awareness around social determinants of health and actually creating comfortability for patients. There's a lot of mistrust in, in our community, in the Black community, primarily because a lot of history and injustice have been done to us with medical practice. Um, But in order to move forward and be able to kind of reconcile those that mistrust, it it really is on us um, as Black scientists to be able to bridge the gap in our communities and be able to get, get uh, folks who aren't scientists to actually trust us and want to opt in to regaining that trust in the medical community. Um, so that's ideally where it starts for me personally. This is where I find the impact with the communication aspect in my paper. So moving forward in my career, everything I do is open access. Um, because I want to be able to distribute my findings and distribute my research to everyday people outside of academia. Um, but also, too, the, it goes back to the way I'm communicating it, where when I'm communicating, I'm not using a lot of jargon. I'm not using a lot of medical words. I'm using pretty, pretty common language for people to really understand what's going on. Of course, I'm going to have some big words in there every every now and then, you know, but uh, not too much words where you like, yeah, just a little salt bay, a little sprinkle, but not too many words where you're like, all right, I'm going to close this. I don't want to read this anymore. And out of my first, uh, well, my second paper that I just published a month ago, I, a lot of my friends and family who don't know anything about what I do um, were able to really understand what I was trying to convey in the message and understand why social determinants health is important. And for me, like, it might not seem that major, but for me, that was a big step because I'm like, okay, I'm moving in the right direction. But also on top of that is this, this, I know that we walk in this space where it's like we, have that need or that want or that drive to do everything by ourselves. Um so in order to actually pull this weight, it will require us to join with each other and actually bond with each other. As us scientists, as we're talking right now, and as we engage with other scientists, whether it be biomedical scientists or even non-biomedical scientists, you know, to be able to come together and actually get our faces on the screen where people can see us whether it be TV, podcasts like this, YouTube videos, um billboards, whatever to so where we can actually where people can see our voice, can hear our voices and see our faces. Um I think that's the next step.
2: Yeah, very well, well said. said. Very well, well said. said. Yeah. <laughs> uh two things. One, uh what you said really really reminded me of a quote um, that kind of stuck with me from Robert Weinberg. Um, he's one of the, the guys who kind of got the whole cancer hallmark thing started. Um, he actually was one of one of, the, one of the authors on that like landmark paper. Um, any case, uh, he started to talk about how, you know, he would, he would lead with explaining things in like simple terms and then lay, and then lay the jargon on, on top of that. And so like, if you look at all of his articles they kind of have that same kind of principle where they start with telling you you know in in basic terms what's going on you know and then they add on the the, the jargon on, on on top of that um uh, so what you said about like scientific communication you know really kind of reminded me of that you know in the way that the way the way that you you know tell that story like you said you know also it, it helps everybody you know patients scientists, you know, laymen who, you know, don't do any of this stuff, you know. Um, So that's a great point. Um, So one thing I did want to ask you about is I see you're on the board and a social media manager for Black in Cancer. I'm sorry, Black in in Chem. (laughs) Not Black in Cancer, Black in Chem. Uh, So can you speak a little bit more about how you guys started with Black in in, uh, Chem Um, and, 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 you know, any plugs you have for things you guys have going on now? or uh, coming up soon. Yeah, wow.
0: Um, Well, thank you for asking about that. I actually got into Black and Chem before I transitioned um, to clinical informatics while I was still doing chemical biology. Um, And I started by, it was the first Black and Chem Week 2020. Had some of the founders, Iana Jones, Sammy Mensa, Ashley Walker, Devin Swiner, couple other folks that actually um led the Forefront of leading the initial week of black and chem and after that that week I reached out to Devin um just to ask how could I be a part of the next black and Kim how can I be a part of this community how can I uh kind of step in and help and starting 2021 black and Kim week I took a lot of time to really put into organizing Black and Kim Week, planning organizing, I mean, planning Black and Kim Week and working with the social media strategy for the week. And that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. Once I got my foot in the door from there, they asked me to be the social media uh, manager. And from there, I became an e-board member as well. And I truly enjoy being a part of this community. I feel... Like I feel like what we're doing at Black and Chem and engaging with Black chemists across the world and putting on um, events um, such as our Twitter Spaces, which I do uh, host the Twitter Spaces. We had some, we had one for Women's History Month, Black History Month. During Black History Month, we had several different ones. Our most recent one was with Dr. Jose Nelson, who just won the Blaviknik award, which is in a very prestigious award for um, chemists. Um, And I just enjoy being a part of this community. So some of the things that we have moving forward is currently we have letters for pre-scientists and um, in cooperation with Black and Neuro, um, which we essentially got Black chemists and Black neuroscientists to be able to be pen pals for uh, young uh, black black children who are in middle school and high school that's one of our uh, lead initiatives that we're working on now another initiative that we well I can't say that one um but <laughs> I can't say that one but uh Other initiatives that we have is we have a global Zach uh, Slack channel as well that we work on creating community amongst uh, Black chemists globally and nationally. Um, My mind is going blank. What else do we have going on currently in the future? Um, My mind is going blank, but essentially we're creating... Partnerships with chemical companies, we created partnerships with D.E. Shaw, we created a few partnerships with other um, companies as well. I can't remember on the top of my head, but essentially Black and Chem, our foundation is based on connecting Black chemists globally and creating opportunities, networking, and partnerships to overall increase the the voices for Black chemists.
1: I know you mentioned that um, you transition from wet lab to dry lab, or you know, lab versus uh, com- computational aspects of things. Uh, I know some other students are, you know, whether they be high school or grad school or even beyond, are are considering transitions like that that are pretty big, you know, and a lot of you know self doubt and can come into your into your mind. So, can you talk about just how you how you conceptualized, or how was the decision made for you to trans transition from the wet lab to the dry lab, knowing that you had to learn how to code from scratch? Cause it, it's not easy, trust. And I, I know that it's not easy, but um, what were what some of the things that kind of helped you make that decision? The biggest thing for me
0: was being open. Um, I was a new graduate student. I didn't really know which path I wanted to take. So that allowed me to be open. And it being ignited by the pandemic, meaning that all the wet labs were closed for the first um quarter of my PhD program. I've I really had no choice but to code. Um, but the beauty of it was that I what's so funny when I tell people this story is that I absolutely hated coding. <laughs> I was a chemical engineer major before I switched to biochemistry. And we had this man that was 70-something years old that taught us C++ on a dry erase board. On a dry erase board, man. I cannot remember his name right now. I wish I could remember, but he taught us C++ on a dry erase board. I was traumatized. I was like, you know what? I never want to code again. This is not for me. But what's funny is Because you never really understand, like you never really know what the future holds for you. And I would have never knew that I was going to code if I didn't end up at UCSF. And so I just had an open mind. And I just continued to learn and kind of rock with the uncertain waters of it. And I ended up loving it. And I love the work-life balance. I can work at home. I'm not tied to mice. I'm not tied to sales.
1: I'm not hiding t- over Gofie. a mass spec. <laughs> it must be nice, man. It must be nice. <laughs> like, Don't I rub live- it in, bro. Don't rub it in. I try not to. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but no, I, like in all, like aside from jokes and games, like I really appreciate the work-life balance. But even on top of that, and I know that since this is the last question, I guess I will leave people with this who's listening and thinking about making that jump. When it sounds too scary, make that jump. Because nine times out of 10, everything is always gonna work out well at the end. You don't know how it's gonna work out in the process, but everything will always work out in the end. As long as you continue to um, not survive, but thrive. And as long as you thrive in the uncertain moments, and thrive even in the good moments and thrive in the bad moments, meaning your mindset, because you can fall on your face. I'm talking about the mindset that you know that you're gonna thrive. It will always work out in the end for you. Sounds like a a true football
3: players, uh, a a real football players mentality right there. Um, (laughs) So I I guess I'm gonna ask the question too. Uh, I love sports grew up playing football as a kid and uh, didn't play in college or nothing like that. But, you know, I always wanted to ask you this. Well, not always, but when you mentioned this early in the episode um, that you made that transition from football to science, Um, how was that? And also how was it being a student science major at the same time? How was that transition?
0: Ooh, it was rough. It was rough, you know, because, you know, you have your labs, you have your labs. That, that, that was essentially the game changer for me um, that separated my classwork from people who are like business majors or maybe journalism majors that I had labs that were four or five hours, multiple times, multiple days during the week. Um, and it was extremely hard for me. Um, I failed a couple classes. I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, I was stressed. I had late nights. I was I was sleeping four or five hours a day. I wasn't really sleeping. Like going through football and science, especially in the season, was a haze. It was definitely a haze. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. But when you have when you have like a drive to do something, it's always going to it's always going to um, work out. And then, you know, I'm gonna steal this from Wakanda. I just watched the new Wakanda movie. You know, they say it's not about how. But it's about why. And I only bring that up, I only bring that up because as long as you know your why, it don't matter about how you get to the end. It's about why you got to the end. And now that I know that my vision is so clear for the future, my why doesn't matter how I'm going to get to where I'm going. But in the end, I knew that my why was there. So and it was it was a good intention. Why good intentional? Why, I would say.
2: That boy preaching. Yo, I was going to say, I'm like, damn, I don't even want to ask him no more questions.
1: I well, like, you know dropped after the mic drop, I'm like, Jesus You're going to comfortable now. So, you no, know, it's a, VA, it's a VA in here, bro. Right. <laughs> this boy is sitting fire, man. Yeah.
2: <laughs> man, uh, I, I actually kind of wanted, I guess my question kind of follow up uh, coincidentally. Um, just, you know, thinking back, you know, given all the different things that you've done over the past, you know, decade plus, um, you know, what are what are some things that that, you know, you know, now uh, looking back, you know, that you may maybe one or, one to three things that you've learned uh, and or that and or that you would do differently knowing what you know now.
0: Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, one thing I would do differently, I would definitely not waste my time with chemical engineering. We would make that extremely clear um <laughs> they had a weed out class and they weeded me right out of it um but um that I would that i think that's the first thing that comes to my mind but i think another thing that would come to my mind is really sitting in myself the more and more i discover myself when i first got into science outside of hampton I dealt with a lot of imposter syndrome. A lot of it had to do with me being a big black man and I'm walking around. People were intimidated. People would think I was, I wasn't as smart. I would never ask questions. People thought that I was dumb because I played football. Like there were so many odds against me that I kind of let, um, what's the word overshadow me. Um, And it wasn't really until after I finished my first year of my PhD that I began to understand that it wasn't about the other, it wasn't about me, but it was more so about other people um, and how they felt about me and for me not to let that affect me. So if I would go back and say to my younger self, I would say, well, I don't know if we can cuss on this, but I would just say, don't. (laughs) I will say, don't worry about what other people think about you, because that's them. And sit in yourself and sit in your own power. If people are intimidated of you, walk walk even more confidently. Like, what? Like, let them know that you're here to be here and they're not going to affect you. And when I started thinking that, when I started thinking that way, the people who were for me would attract to me and I would attract those who were for me. I've gained stronger connections with my mentors, stronger connections with outside of u c s f and it just allowed me to be confident like I'm at the point where I know I'm him, you know I'm him, and no one can really stop me and If I can give that to anyone listening to this today is really sit in your confidence because at the end of the day there's only one person like you for a reason, and so Whatever God has for you, he has for you. So no need to stress.
1: Right, you might drop. Yeah, man. <laughs> Amen, amen. <laughs> Bow. <like. laughs>
3: yeah, it's the offering plate up there, <laughs> I hear you.
1: <laughs> Yo, we appreciate your words and, and your, your story. Uh, we are very excited to see what the future holds for you. Uh, now that you're, you 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 know what your why is, so it's just really us just being an audience on the journey to seeing what that looks like. So thank you for sharing your time. Um, we like to give our guests uh, the last the last word and to kind of promote anything or shout out to anybody that you want to. This is your this is your time to do it.
0: Um, well, I would like to say thank you to my mom, and I like to say my family for supporting me along this way I like to say thank you to my big brother in science Damari is young, future Dr Young uh, because if it was not if it was not for him, I would not have been a science major and honest honest like he inspired me to continue to go when I was very close to dropping out um, dropping out of stem uh, first semester of college. And if it was not for him, I I probably wouldn't be where I am right now. I mean, I would still be somewhere successful, but I just would not be in STEM. Um, And so I really appreciate him for really taking the time to like be a big brother to me throughout my collegiate career and now in my science career. Um, So big shout out to
1: him. Yo, shout out to all the brothers in STEM that are, you know, being held each other each other accountable and helping us up and keeping us going because we ain't that many as you as you alluded to and and your conferences we we see all the same things in our respective conferences too and wherever we go you know so we have to walk in confidence and know that we are who we are whose we are you know and that we're here for a reason so thank you uh for your for for uh stopping by for the culture podcast uh we'll definitely be uh be sure to to share your social information if if you're if you're if you're willing to, uh, so that people can get in contact with you um, offline. But uh, yeah, that's what this is the the show for today. You just listen to For the Culture podcast with your host Ian Kofi and Lawrence. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Thanks for listening to For The Culture Podcast with your hosts, Ian, Kofi, and Lawrence. If you're new here, don't forget to click that subscribe button and follow us on social media. Help us grow by liking and sharing this episode with your family and friends. Hey, that's all for this episode. See you next time.